0: Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to talk about 2 Nephi 26-30. But before we do, I think it's good that we just revisit a couple of things that we... We had a lot of stuff to
1: cover last time, didn't we, Bryce? We were so focused on Isaiah that we didn't really get to that last chapter of Nephi's writings, chapter 25. Yeah, so we're just going to talk a little bit about
0: the 25 in grace briefly. I just want to read this verse. It's 2 Nephi twenty-five twenty-three, where Nephi says, We labor diligently to write and to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. And notwithstanding we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses. I want to talk a little bit about grace, and then Bryce is going to talk a little bit about grace, and then we're going to get into 2 Nephi 26 through 30. I hope that's okay. So first, I just want to say... I think sometimes the idea about grace being something that's available to us after we've expended all of our best efforts, and I know that that's something that we teach. I think sometimes the thought, Bryce, is that, oh, if I work really hard, then Jesus kicks in,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. I think we react so much to born again Christianity that says all you need is Jesus, just one hundred percent Jesus, just accept Jesus and you'll be saved. And we see that as out of balance. And so I worry that we correct that idea by going all the way other to the other side and say, well, I have to do everything I possibly can do. And yeah. if I if I come up short even in the slightest, then His grace isn't going to be sufficient. And we do this, we make the same error just in the opposite direction, and we see. You know, it's too much us and not enough Jesus versus too much Jesus and not enough us. But both of those are incorrect and both of those are not right. Sometimes they're contraries, like what the Lord does and what I do. And
0: big picture, I think what we see here is Nephi's explaining this as a dance. I really like the idea of a dance. And what I mean by that is Nephi is doing what he can and he's participatory in this redemptive act but God is doing the work the whole time. God is able to do his own work, and Nephi even says this. The Greek word is charis, and a, a great scholar, his name is Brent Schmidt, wrote a book called Relational Grace, the Reciprocal and Binding Covenant of Charis. And so some of his ideas in his book I'm going to talk about, at least the Greek notion of what charis is. And I really do believe that this idea of charis or grace is is explained in the Book of Mormon powerfully and clearly, and so what is caris? Uh, essentially, it is a gift, and so in a client relationship, let's say a listener that you want to become a blacksmith and you're a young person, you would go and you would work for someone who was a master at this trade, and the gift you would bring to them would be your labor like your desire, your willingness to work. And the gift they would give you would be what? Their expertise. Yeah. And their that knowledge. Yeah. And that's the client system. Now, it worked in politics as well. If I had less political pull than Bryce and I wanted to achieve an office, I would go to Bryce and say, hey,
1: here's kind of what I stand for. Bryce, can you help me out? And Bryce would say? I would endorse him and say, hey, everyone who knows anything about me, you need to know Mike. He's a good guy. You should vote for him. And there's this so it's unsp- a dance. It's a grace yeah. for grace. It's an exchange.
0: And there's this unspoken
1: rule that when Bryce gives me his endorsement, what what's kind of unspoken there? I expect you to be the politician that I am going to endorse. So be everything that I believe you to be. So there's something I expect from you. And what I'm going to give you in exchange is my good name. So I ask you to honor that good name and live up to it. So it's a give and a take. It's a grace for grace type situation. Yeah.
0: If you're interested in the in the understanding of Keris from the classical Greek perspective, I would encourage you to read Brent Schmidt's book. But essentially, for about a hundred pages, he takes you through the classics. He knows Greek and he just says listen this is the, this is how they understood it and to the Greek mind, that's what Keris was. It was this dance, it was relational, but it's even manifest. In Jesus' writings or, or in the stories about Jesus, for example, Luke 17 with the ten lepers, it's not that Jesus wanted payment, but those of you that have read the story know what did he want, Bryce? Thanks, gratitude, acknowledgement. Yeah. He wanted them to be grateful. Yeah. So that's that's kind of what it is. Now, what happened? It was right around the time of Augustine in, Christianity. in Christian history, like what happened to the idea of grace? Augustine came up with this idea that God determines who receives grace and who doesn't. And why? Well, because God's sovereign. If God's sovereign, then he determines who's saved. And that was a real struggle in Christianity. There was a guy by the name of Pelagius who— Taught oppositely, and we don't really know exactly what Pelagius taught because he is his uh, understanding of grace is given to us from his enemies. All, his writings didn't exist, so we have basically what his enemies said about him. But from what we have, he does teach this idea against a no strings attached or irresistible grace. The reason why he taught against that is because to him it wasn't reciprocal. In Pelagius's mind. Grace was something that God gave you, but you gave back. You changed your nature. You, you wanted to follow Jesus. Um, Pelagius, like I said, was castigated by his contemporaries, but he was a kind of a voice in the wilderness. Later, we have Martin Luther, and he says this. He says, God has taken my salvation out of my hands and into his, making it depend on his choice and not mine, and has promised to save me not by my own work or exertion, but by his grace and mercy. Now, there's a lot to unpack with Martin Luther, but one of the things that I think we need to recognize is Martin Luther tried to do it by himself. And there's a famous quote, I'm going to butcher it, but he essentially said, I tried with my monkery to be the best monk I could till my monkery was sore, essentially. In other words, he tried so hard to be like Jesus and realized that he couldn't. And so the pendulum kind of swung the other way, and he just says, well, it's God's will. God will save me um, by his grace, and it has nothing to do with my my will. We'll post a lot of these scriptures in the show notes, but Nephi teaches reciprocal grace. He really does, brothers and sisters. Um, he teaches that it's in Jesus that we're saved, but yet at the same time, Jesus expects something. The Book of Mormon teaches the nuances of charis. Um, all is. All will be resurrected, we read. Salvation is free. And yet, how many times do the prophets focus on the spiritual component of salvation and repenting of our sins? Cheap grace is not something that the Book of Mormon teaches, but yet we're saved by it. And so, Bryce, um, how do you look at grace in the sense of the Book of Mormon, and Nephi's teachings?
1: And what, what light do you want to shed on this? I'd like to jump to the Doctrine and Covenants and illustrate. Um, the Lord gave us a beautiful illustration. One of the reasons that Jesus came into the world is to show us how to be saved. And Jesus demonstrates this dance absolutely perfectly. In Doctrine and Covenants section 93, it says three times in three verses that Jesus received not the fullness at the first, but received grace for Grace. And then the next verse, that was 12, section 93, 12. And then here's 13. He received not the fullness of the first, but continued from grace to grace. So even Jesus demonstrates this dance by growing grace for grace and grace to grace. What does that mean to you, and grace then, to grace? I'm going to illustrate. But I want to point out in verse 19, Jesus then says, this is given to you that you might know how to worship and that you know what to worship, and you may come unto the Father, and in due time receive of His fullness. Verse 20, for if you keep my commandments, ye shall receive of the fullness, and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. Now, let me put two scriptures together and see if I can illustrate, you know, a common approach to grace for grace. One scripture is in section 93. It's very clear. Verse 20, 28. He that keepeth his commandments receiveth light and truth. There's the gift from God. That's the just, if you keep his commandments, he gives you light and truth. That's his grace to us, his goodness. If you keep his commandments, he gives you light and truth. Now, earlier in Doctrine and Covenant, section 82, it says, unto whom much is given, much is required. So when you have more light and truth, Your grace to God is that you obey that light and truth, and there's your part of the dance. So, those two go hand in hand. God gives you light as you obey. That light pushes you to a higher level of obedience, and your gift to God is that you rise up and you obey, which if you do, He will give you light and truth. So, let me illustrate. Imagine walking—my life is like this room that Mike and I are in. There's a lot of books and desks, and there's some papers, and this room is a mess. My life is a mess, and I walk in. Now, the room isn't really a mess. I just wanted to- this Actually, is just it is. I got,
0: I got books everywhere. Bryce is telling the truth. He's
1: trying to be nice, but no, it's okay.
0: I, it, it's a mess. I don't know what to stop reading,
1: but go on. So I walk into this room, and this is my life, and all I have is a little bit of a candle. I come into the world with a little bit of light. And by that light, I can see that the furniture is a mess. The tables a mess. The chairs are a mess. And by the light that I have, I tidy up. I clean up the desk. I clean up the chairs. Now, based on our first scripture, if I obey, what grace do I receive from Him? Light, added light. And so, because I tidied up the room, He gives me a little bit of light. Now, when my light increases, what am I going? What's going to happen? I'm going to notice the books on the shelves are kind of in disarray. And I'm going to tidy up the books. Now, ready, brothers and sisters, for a very critical question. Why didn't I fix the books when I tidied up the desk? I couldn't see them. Do you see how that works in our lives? I didn't have the light to see that the books were, were in a disarray. I could see the desk, I could see the chair, and that's what I fixed. But I couldn't see the books. I didn't have enough light. And now that I have tidied up the books, God's grace to me is that He's going to grant me more light. And with that added light, I'm going to see things I didn't see before. And when I see those things that need to be fixed, I'm going to make adjustments in my life. And when I make adjustments in my life, I'm going to receive added light that is grace. It's grace for grace. It's grace to grace. And that's how Jesus saves us. We do what we can. He gives us light and help. We take that light and help and do more than we than, than we have been doing in the past. We get a little bit better. And when we get a little bit better, He gives us more help and more light. And we take that light and we see things that we need to fix and we do it. Now, if you don't understand this project process, it's going to seem to you that you're actually getting worse because you're going to try to get better and you're going to see problems in your life. But you need to understand that that isn't evidence that you're not growing. That's actually evidence that you're growing. You're seeing things you didn't see before, and that means you have added light.
0: It's almost like a contrary. You're growing and you see that you're not growing. Yeah. Or you see the growth that you don't have. Right. By the way, Bryce, I but just want to add this. By- I just want to add this, that God meets you where you're at. That's right.
1: Wherever you are, he'll meet you. But yeah, go on with this. Whatever light you have, you take that light and clean up the room and he'll give you more light. Now, we need to be careful because as we look around and see each other, you don't know what light the other person has. So we can't judge each other. We can't compare ourselves to each other. Just be faithful to the light you have. So let me sum all this up in a verse that we're going to get to in this week's scripture block. If you'll go to 2 Nephi chapter 28. Is an absolute beautiful summary of how this works in everyday lives. And Nephi just nailed it. Now, Nephi is the very person that says we're saved by grace after all we can do. But I would tie these verses together. You've got to tie that verse. You're saved by grace. After you do something, you get grace. And then when you get grace, you're required to do something. And now 2 Nephi chapter 28, verse 30. Here's a beautiful summary of how the dance works with God. Ready? For behold, thus saith the Lord God, I will give unto the children of men, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, and blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts. See, there it is, hearken unto my precepts. In other words, I give God the grace of obedience and lend an ear to my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. There's God's grace. For unto him that receiveth will I give more. And from them which say, I have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. That is salvation. That's how Jesus lived. That's how Jesus grew from grace to grace. That's how we're supposed to do it. You dance. You obey. You take the light that he has. You hearken unto his precepts and you give God the grace of obedience. And then he gives you the grace of light. We are saved by grace after all we can do. I think that's just a beautiful illustration of the dance, Mike. I love that. You know, you did it so masterfully last week, but I just
0: want to repeat this. I just think this is just brilliant. And the the call narrative of Isaiah, I just love that where we talked about, you talked about the peace of the atonement, this call. If you didn't listen to our Isaiah stuff, go back and listen. That's last week's, but in Second Nephi 16, where it says, thy sin is purged. That's verse 7. So this angel takes this coal from off the altar and he puts it on Isaiah's lips and his sin is purged. And then in the very next verse, in verse 8, the
1: Lord says, whom shall I send? There's the dance. It's awesome. I cleanse you. I give you this marvelous spiritual experience. Now, would you go preach the gospel? And of course. Of course. Like, why would I not? Of course, Lord. You anyway, It's the dance. That's grace.
0: I just, brothers and sisters, I just believe this, that the Book of Mormon is teaching this idea of this reciprocal relationship. And so it's everywhere. And I think this is so important. I I don't, I don't want the pendulum to swing so far that because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has traditionally emphasized works that we're just going to swing the pendulum all the other, all the other way where it's like Jesus just takes the wheel and I jump in the backseat of the car. Like, it, i love the idea of a dance and so bryce thank you so much for talking about that and i hope that this has been useful to you before we go go on yeah it's reciprocal a couple examples from nephi's life the brass plates the liahona, the ship all of these things are participatory so when we jump into second nephi 26 if the, if you never listened to this podcast before bryce is really good at explaining okay nephi's targeting specific audiences. And so, Bryce, why don't you talk about those audiences and what Nephi is doing here in
1: these chapters? Okay, so let's go back to Nephi's vision. Remember, Lehi receives a vision of the tree of life, and then Nephi wants to know more. But the Lord doesn't give Nephi the symbolic vision. He doesn't show him a tree, a rod, a a, a building. He he tells him three historical narratives. Chapter 11 of 1 Nephi is the story of the New Testament Jews. And how they were blinded. And and the Lord is saying, Do you see the tree in that story? Do you see the the mist of darkness that blinded the New Testament Jews to Jesus that was right in front of them? And then the very next story of chapter twelve of first Nephi is the story of the Nephites and the Lamanites. So Nephi gets the, the New Testament Jewish story, he gets the Book of Mormon story, and then in chapters thirteen and fourteen, he gets the Gentiles. And those seem to be the three audiences that Nephi has on his mind. The Jews his own people, and then the latter days. So coming out of Isaiah, watch what he does. So chapter 24 is the last Isaiah chunk. And then the first, oh, eight or 10 verses of chapter 25 is really just how to get more out of Isaiah. He gives us some wonderful suggestions on how to get more out of Isaiah. Now notice in verse nine, now he turns his attention to the first group, the Jews. So nine through 19, His focus is on the Jews. And he's trying to say the very thing that the Jews got wrong, the blinder to the Jews, is they missed Jesus because he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. And so you'll find him saying in these verses, look, don't reject Jesus because he's not what you want. Look at verse 18. He shall bring forth his words unto them, which words shall judge them at the last days, for they shall be given of them for the purpose of convincing them of the true Messiah who was rejected by them unto the convincing of them that they need not look forward anymore to a Messiah. So that's the Jewish blinder, that Jesus wasn't the Messiah they wanted. And so Nephi's addressing that. And so those first 11 or so verses, he says, let's talk to the Jews. Now, notice in verse 20. Now, I know we're still back in 25. We'll get to 26 in a minute. So we're still in Second Nephi 25. Verse 20, he shifts gears. Notice it's now and now my brethren. I have spoken plainly so that you cannot speak. And from here on out, he's speaking to his brethren. Notice he'll say things like verse 23. We labor diligently to write to persuade our children. Or that famous verse in verse 26. We talk of Christ. We rejoice of Christ. We preach of Christ. Why? So that our children may know what source they need to go to. Verse 28. And now behold, ye are my people. So Nephi's talking to his people, and that continues into chapter 26. So now we get to this week's block. Second Nephi 26, he begins with, And after Christ shall have risen from the dead, he shall show himself unto you, my children. So he's still speaking to the Nephites and the Lamanites. And he says some wonderful things. But then in verse 11, he ends, he's done with the Nephites. He he points out that the Savior's, well, maybe we ought to put in verse 7. Oh, the pains and the anguish of my soul for the loss of the slain of my people. He has seen how the story ends. And he knows the Nephites are going to be destroyed and the Lamanites are going to kill him. And so he anguishes over that. Verse 9, but he knows that the Savior's going to appear to his people. And they will feel the nail marks in his hands and that they'll live in a period of peace. So Nephi has seen the Nephite history. So then in verse 11, he's done. He ends with that. And notice in verse 12, right there in the center of the verse, he now begins to speak about the Gentiles. So, and that's going to carry the rest of 26, all of 27, all of 28, all of 29. So that's his audience. His audience is really the Gentiles in the latter days, the pro, the, the faithful and the unfit. Now remember, Nephi saw that there would be good Gentiles and not so good Gentiles. There would be disobedient, wicked Gentiles and righteous Gentiles, but he's going to speak to the Gentiles. He is speaking to our day. So this is profound literature. This is marvelous scripture, brothers and sisters. This is a prophet using his Syric eyes to see the very problems in the society in which we live.
0: And I think knowing this makes it relevant, but I think I think addressing this, like if you're teaching a class, showing them this makes it so important.
1: Yep. Here are the things Nephi saw. So let me just give you a little bit more structure. Chapter 26, verse 14. Behold, I prophesy unto you concerning the last days. Turn to chapter 27. But behold, in the last days. Go to chapter 8 and point out in the chapter heading, many false churches will be built up in the last days. And then chapter 29, but behold, there there shall be many in that day. So everything, 26, the rest of 26, all of 27, all of 28, and all of 29 are, here are the problems I see with the latter day. So beware. He's waving his arms saying, here are the dangers for those of you who are faithful. Here are the dangers of your society. So, Mike, should we just jump in chapter by chapter or should we go, how do you want to handle this? Because yeah. 28 is really the heart of here's the problem. So here's a little bit of a structure. So 26, he says, here are in general, the problems that I see. So no, no, notice, for example, he says in verse 20, pride is going to be a major challenge. 21, many churches. This is 2nd Nephi 26. Pride in 20, many churches in 21. Secret combinations in 22. And then he shows Jesus isn't that way. Here's the way of Jesus. Verse 29, there's going to be a lot of priestcraft. And then he defines that. Priestcraft is when men preach and set themselves up to be a light unto the world.
0: And they, they don't labor for Zion.
1: They don't labor for their brother. They don't labor for the goodness of God. So that's kind of an introduction. And then in 27, he talks, this is really Isaiah. This is the JST of Isaiah 29.
0: I like to call it Isaiah 29 redux. Yeah. The way I see it is Isaiah. Is there, Nephi has it, and he's packaging it. And he's like, let me explain
1: you what this is saying. And Isaiah, way back in his day, talks about a book. He talks about the apostasy. So verse 5: the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, ye have closed your eyes, ye have rejected the prophets, your rulers and the seers hath he covered because of your iniquity. So clearly that's an uh, apostasy period. In the which, verse 9, the Lord would bring forth the words of a book and that the book would be delivered to an unlearned man. And then there's prophecies here about what Joseph Smith would do with that book. He mentions in verse 12 that there would be three witnesses. He mentions in verse 13 that there would be eight witnesses. He talks about the little experience with Charles Anthon, that the learned were not able to read the book, but the unlearned were. And then the whole idea here is, verse 29, in that day, if you read the book, if you don't reject the book because of your preconceived notions, if you read the book, the deaf will hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness.
0: I think that ties into Isaiah's call in his call narrative where the Lord talks about their ears and their eyes and their hearts. I really like looking at this chapter two, Bryce as, okay, it's Joseph Smith. But it's you. Yeah. When you,
1: you know. You are the unlearned the, yeah. that takes the book and meekly and humbly reads it and, and remembers that God is great and that I am just, I'm, I'm, as King Benjamin would say, my own nothingness. And when we are the unlearned people with the book, you're right, Mike, this yeah. is us. Yeah. I, you know, it's verse 11 of Isaiah 29. And it's verse 18
0: of 2 Nephi 27, where the learned says, I cannot read it. And I had a, a really wise friend to me. one time say this. He was a bishop in uh, the Chicago where I was serving. And he said to me, um, Elder Day, this is fulfilled every day. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I, I, I see this as a historical thing. And he said to me, Every time a young elder or sister missionary says, read this, I pray thee, and they say, I cannot read it, for it is sealed unto me, the book is sealed to them, and they can't see it. And so I think with however many missionaries we have, this is fulfilled thousands of times a day. Right. And so Isaiah is perpetually relevant, and the message of this book is if you read it,
1: your eyes will see. Your heart will feel... You'll be converted and you'll be healed. I mean, isn't that beautiful? It's right back to Isaiah's message. It's awesome. If you read the book, don't reject the book. But Nephi saw that in our day, so many people would reject the book because of these false ideas. So that leads us into chapter 28, where Nephi says, here are the prevailing false ideas in the latter days. Now, we'll spend a lot of time here, but let me just point out verse 5. One of the most common prevailing ideas in the latter days is the end of verse 5, that there is no God today today. For the Lord and the Redeemer have done his work, and he has given his power unto man. And you begin to see that all throughout this chapter. Verse 29, We will be unto him that say, We have received the word of God, and we need no more word of God, for God from God, for we have enough. Back in verse 27, Woe be unto him that saith, We have received, and we need no more. And then that flows right into chapter 29 where Nephi just says, don't be one of those that rejects the book saying, verse three, a Bible, a Bible. We have got a Bible and there cannot be any more Bible. And that really is one of the prevailing blindnesses in our day. People are blind to the Book of Mormon because they say, we have the Bible. We don't need any more. And so Nephi specifically singles out that particular false doctrine and gives us a whole nother chapter about it, and that's chapter twenty nine. So there's kind of the structure. We begin in a general sense in twenty six, prides, you know secret combinations, many churches. 27, the book, 28, the doctrines that the false churches teaches, and then verse 29, one particular false doctrine, and that is that there's no more revelation today. All we need is the Bible. Everything that God wants us to know is in the Bible, and that is 29.
0: Yeah, so how do we handle this? I think, Bryce, I think one way to handle this is to really take a look at 28, because I really think Nephi has a bead on 2020 culture. Like, how are we today? And what, you know, what kind of people are we? Uh, there's a chart we'll put in the show notes of just all the different, what, what this uh, author of the chart wrote was the ways of the devil in Second Nephi 28, 3 through 30. And some of these really hit home. I highlighted a few of them. One of the ones that I really hit on was this idea of skepticism. So in verse six, it says basically, um, say there, if you say there's a miracle wrought by the hand of the Lord, believe it not. And I see that, especially out there with the internet, like someone will share a faithful experience or there might be a faithful experience from church history and people love to just get on and pile on and debunk it and say, don't believe it. And yet the Book of Mormon exists. Like we have to explain it. We have to explain the miracles that people have. And I don't think they're exclusive just to people who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Are they, Bryce? I mean, people experience the divine. We can't even explain it. And so- The skeptical world
1: says don't believe it. And there's this tension between the miraculous and the skeptical. And one of the culprits in that one of the targets is the translation of the Book of Mormon. They'd like to think, they'd like to reduce it to a very understandable human process that Joseph Smith wrote this book. And yet they can't explain the miracle of the Book of Mormon. They can't explain the things that Joseph, there's no way Joseph knew. The Book of Mormon came forth in a miraculous way. It was a miracle you can't read the Book of Mormon without concluding that there is no way Joseph Smith could have brought this forth. It was a miracle. But our culture is so anti-miracle, so anti—we have to explain it scientifically. There has to be a logical explanation. And we brush away the miracles of God, and we try and find a logical explanation that it wasn't wrought by God. And yet there's also this idea out there that okay, God exists,
0: but he's kind of out there in the void and he's letting us do whatever we want, essentially almost like a deist worldview where, okay, God wound up the universe if it were a clock and he put the clock over here on the shelf and he's doing his thing and we're just kind of buzzing around. That's verse five, where it says, the Lord, the Redeemer has done his work, but he's given his power unto men. And yet I also believe, Bryce, I also believe part of this. In other words, God has given me the keys and says, Mike, go drive the car, go live your life. But yet at the same time, we need to check in with the heavens and 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 have this
1: dance that we've talked about. And so and sometimes the, these are, they're contrary sometimes. Well, that's how the devil works. He never invents anything new. He just takes a true doctrine and he twists it. That's all he ever does is he'll take a truth and he'll twist it. And in every single one of these, there's a little element of truth. But it doesn't necessarily excuse the twist of the truth. So be smart enough to recognize the truth and the twist of the truth. Like, yeah, God does allow us to, he does grant us agency and he does let us live our lives. But the twist of that is he, we're so far removed from God that we can't call upon him for help, that we're here completely abandoned by God and have to figure out our salvation without him. Yeah, That's the twist. So I, I want to do a 7 and 8, if that's okay. Yeah, that one's next. So Again, Nephi's waving his arm, saying, yeah. I see a prevailing theme coming out in the latter days. Yeah, so verse 7, 2 Nephi 28, There shall be many which
0: will say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and it shall be well with us. I really think that is very much the hedonistic, pleasure-seeking culture that we live in today, which is just, hey, we're just going to do whatever we can. We get, he who dies with the most toys wins. And yet um, to Nephi, I, I think Nephi did live in the moment. And I think he did have moments when he did eat, drink, and was merry. But yet I think he's trying to balance this. And then if you're someone who, well, let's say you believe in God, I think verse 8 is kind of a another step away from verse 7. So verse 8 says, There shall be many which shall say, eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, fear God. He will justify in committing a little sin, yea, lie a little, take the advantage of one because of his words, dig a pit for thy neighbor, there is no harm in this, and do all these things for tomorrow we die. And if it so be that we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes, and at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. And I really think that is kind of a misunderstanding of God's love and God's grace, and And if we think that God is just, um, he's merciful, he's filled with mercy, and we emphasize that too much, I think we can justify sin. But I think, Bryce, if we emphasize God's justice too much, we do damage as well. So there's almost like a balance that has to be hit. And yet, when you're talking to a group of people, there are those in there that see God as super just, super
1: and the worst thing you could do to those people is to talk about God's justice. Right, right. What they need to hear is God's mercy. The problem with that is people who see God as all mercy and hear a message of mercy are pushed even further out of balance. Right. And the, the key here is what I think Nephi's saying is, in the latter days, the devil is going to push true doctrines to an extreme. So instead of seeing God both as just and merciful, and perfectly so, they push them to an extreme and see him as extremely merciful or extremely just. And even though Nephi doesn't really describe the other side, I think we live in a society that has seen that other side, that we've seen God's character pushed to extremes. Now, God is both just and merciful, and he's perfectly so. But to see him as more mercy than justice or more justice than mercy, and to diminish the other quality is to see him incorrectly. And when we see God incorrectly, we live a life that loses its moral concept. You take God out of our lives and we lose our morality. You take justice out and we take advantage of the atonement and we don't live our part and it affects our morality. If you take mercy out then we're terrified of God and it affects our morality. So what Nephi's saying is in the latter days, the true character and nature of God are going to be confused. And people are either going to eliminate God from the society, or they're going to push his characters to an extreme and make that almost a vice instead of a virtue.
0: Bryce, what has helped you to really understand and comprehend the true nature of God? Because I, I, I'm going to throw this out there. I really think a lot of us, and when I say us, I just mean people of believers in the Bible, believers in Jesus, there's all kinds of misconceptions about God. So many of Christians don't even view our, our father in heaven as literally our father. But here, as a Latter-day Saint, a believing member of the church, ha, what has helped you to see who
1: he is? I will say this simply and emphatically, I made the leap of faith to gather my information about him from him. I went to him. I humbly went to him. Now I know that takes a vulnerability and we humans don't like vulnerability, but I went to him and I said, Lord, you need to teach me. And I love the the prayer of King Lamoni's father in the Book of Mormon. Aaron hath told me that there is a God. And if there is a God, Wilt thou and thou art God wilt thou make thyself man known unto me and I will give away all my sins the only way I think you can come to understand God's mercy and justice and that perfect balance between them is to interact with him I like the woman taken in adultery who had an experience with Jesus and he said neither do I condemn thee but he also said go and sin no more And so to have an experience with Him where you feel His justice and you appreciate His justice, but you also feel and understand His mercy, you have to, and I think that's last in our last podcast, that's what made Isaiah such an effective missionary. Once the atonement is a real thing in your life, once you have interacted with heaven, once you have connected with God in very real ways, then He can send you. Then He can say, who shall I send? One of my favorite quotations from Joseph Smith, he said, he says, could you gaze into heaven for five minutes, you would know more about God than everything that has been written about him. So yes, the scriptures are wonderful, but the scriptures mainly are a tool for coming to know him. You will balance the misconceptions in your life as you have personal experiences with God himself. And don't you think the scriptures
0: open that up? They they facilitate. They're like a vehicle. For me, the scriptures, Bryce, they open up my eyes to thinking about him and thinking about my relationship to him. But a lot of times I don't even understand the text for years. I might read something and I might read it and ponder it. And months later, I'll have an insight or I'll I'll read a historical narrative of someone and I'll say, oh my gosh, that reminds me of this verse. And I'll make a connection with something else and then it will connect to something else and I'll say, I think I'm starting to get it. Yet, there's the dance, right? It's a Isn't journey. that the dance? Yeah, but it it's just an seems effort. like it takes
1: time. It does. It, it, there's an effort to know him. There's a, an effort to get to know him and to spend time with him and to see his grace and to see his mercy. And we find those attributes in human beings and in our reaction with God. And so the, the antidote to all of these things that Nephi is talking about is to have a personal relationship with God himself yeah. and to go to him. I would hate someone to get to know me by going to the internet and reading what other people are saying about me. You want to get to know me, call me, get to know me, let me into your life. And then you'll get to know me. And it's the same thing with God. The only way to overcome that eat, drink and be merry mentality is to interact with him and to sense his mercy and his justice and that balance.
0: Yeah. I think for me also, fatherhood has really helped me to try to get closer to understanding who God is just interacting with my children and watching them be born and watching them get married and kind of life's experiences and I think that's one reason why I really like I really like this idea of you know people come to earth and there's a lot of people that have never heard of Jesus but if you come to earth and you live a life you come to know God through experience that you come to earth and Many of you will fall in love and, and get married and raise children and have your heart broken and watch your parents die. And that's kind of a collective experience of humanity. And I think that's partly why we're here. And yet, I think to Nephi, this is just this is the way I look at it. I know it's not till next week, but I've got to read this verse. There's this really cool verse at the end of Second Nephi. So the same Nephi who's like, hey, there's the iron rod, and there's only two churches, and you know, you're know, you either in the good guys or the bad guys, and the Nephi that shocks his brothers, and man, my brothers are such jerks. I love this verse at the end of Second Nephi where he says in 33 verse 12, he says, I pray the Father in the name of Christ that many of us, if not all may be saved in his kingdom. I really think Nephi, this is me, I think Nephi grows. Even as he's writing this narrative and he's experiencing the divine, he's coming to know even more. In the series of these podcasts, Bryce and I have talked about even the name of God is revealed to Nephi. And so over the course of time, uh, he grows and he learns and he sees things. And I really think at the end of his life, I can almost see Grandpa Nephi as he writes this and he says, man... I want everybody to come in. And and brothers and sisters, that's what I believe about who God is. There's a great quote by Joseph Smith where he talks about this, where he says, while one portion of the human race is judging and condemning the other without mercy, the great parent of the universe looks upon the whole human family with a fatherly care and paternal regard. He views them as his offspring and Without any of those contracted feelings that influence the children of men, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. He holds the reins of judgment in his hands. He is a a wise lawgiver and will judge all men, not according to the narrow, contracted notions of men, but according to the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or evil. He will judge them, not according to what they have not, but according to what they have. Those who have lived without law will be judged without law, and those who have a law will be judged by that law. We need not doubt the wisdom and intelligence of the great Jehovah. He will award judgment or mercy to all nations according to their means of obtaining intelligence, to the laws by which they are governed, the facilities afforded them of obtaining correct information and his inscrutable designs in relation to the human family." I just love that. I really see Nephi and he just wants everybody.
1: And that's that's who he is. And so now let me just point out yeah. what what Mike just did, everyone. Uh, there's something very significant to what Mike just did and what Mike's talking about. So he's reading a prophecy of Nephi about the problems of the latter days, the misunderstandings, the false doctrines of the of the latter days, and he sees, wait a minute, the solution is to know the character of God. The solution is to identify and know what kind of being God is. And so may I suggest that in Nephi's big picture, the problem in our day is that the world is missing information about God's identity. We're lost. And one of the things that the restoration has done is it has restored the knowledge of God. The plain and precious truths that have been brought back in our day primarily deal with the character of God. All of these issues that Nephi's talking about, as you teach this week's block, as you talk to your families, as you have these discussions, I want you to pay attention to how many of the problems that Nephi foresees in our day are related to not having a correct understanding about who God is and His nature and how He feels about us. And if you'll do that, then you'll realize that the solution is to teach the true character of God, to come to know the true character of the Father and the Son. And we do that because in the restoration, those truths have been restored and we know who He is and we know what He wants to do. And I love what Mike just did instinctively as we talk about problems in our latter days. The solution is to restore in people's minds the correct knowledge of Heavenly Father. Yeah. So let's do that again. If you'll go back to 2 Nephi 28, let's do three false doctrines right in a row, 20, 21, and 22. But they all kind of have a thing the same theme. It's a similar theme. Watch for the subtleties of removing God out of our lives. So in verse 20... 2 Nephi 28, 20. For behold, at that day shall he rage in the hearts of the children of men and stir them up to anger against that which is good. Others will he pacify and lull them away into carnal security that they will say, hey, everything's great. All is well in Zion. There's no problems. Zion prospereth, and thus the devil cheateth their soul and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. And behold, others he flattereth away and telleth them, there is no hell. And he saith unto them, I am no devil, for there is none. And thus he whispereth in their ears until he grasps them with his awful chains. In other words, he's kind of taking God out of the picture. God isn't here. His standards aren't here. His absolute truths aren't here. Um, and and many people react to the absence of God with anger. He stirs them up to anger against him. Other people are pacified because, oh, everything's fine. I don't need to panic. I don't need to f- work so much on my salvation. I, need, I don't need to focus so much on what I need to improve. In other words, there's a complacency with mediocrity, even with sin. And then in verse 23, that's because sin doesn't exist. There is no evil. There is no devil. There's just what you want to choose. And so we hear a lot of talk in our society about relative truths. And people will say, well, that's not my truth. Yeah, I have my own truth. I have my own truth. And they believe that because God doesn't, they don't believe that God has an absolute truth. They have been lulled into carnal security into thinking that God's absolute truth has, has been pulled away. And when they've been pulled away, then it's just my truth. There is no evil. There is no God. There's just my truth. Now, I'm going to mention something, and I, and I recognize there's a lot of people out there that may disagree with me, but to me, this is encapsulated in the world's philosophy regarding the origin of man and the theory of evolution. It seems to me that what man has done is tried to explain their existence without God. They've turned us into animals. We are simply evolved animals. That's all we are. We are evolved animals. Therefore, we should act like animals, and animals don't have a moral code. There is no evil. If a buck has no does and over there's a buck with seven does. I can go kill that buck and steal his does. And that's not wrong in the animal kingdom. And it seems to me that what's happening in our society is that humanity is removing God. They are being lulled into a carnal security into thinking there is no evil. There is no absolute right and absolute wrong. You take the divinity out of us. You take our divine creation out of us. And the only explanation you have left is that we are animals. That's kind of how I see where we are in society is that we have removed God from us and we've turned ourselves into animals.
0: So I'm going to push back a little bit on this because I think that there's some of our listeners out there are thinking, well, wait a second. The church doesn't really have a stance on evolution. I think the issue is, what conclusions are you drawing from the evidence? And I would say, learn all you can. And you can be a, a man or woman of faith and also be a, a man or a woman of science. And so I, whenever I, these questions are brought up to me in a classroom, I say, look, uh, science talks about how, but it never says, why, why do you exist? You know, The two great days of your life, the day you were born and the day you figured out why. You're not going to learn in a lab why you were born. Moses 139 is going to say, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality into a life of man. There is a God and you are his son or daughter. A great book uh, that talks a little bit about this, not LDS, but uh, it's a book called The Lost World of Genesis 1 by John Walton. And I highly suggest if you're interested in this to to read it. But one of his points that John Walton makes is he says, "What I'm talking about, you can be a man or woman of faith and still be a scientist." But one of the dangers, and this is a fancy word that he's going to use, the word is distological. And his point is, we kind of jump, we make leaps, we take uh, evolution, and we say, "Well, because of this." nothing matters. It's dystopian. It's distological. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no creative process behind the creation. And John Walton's contention is we can't scientifically prove or disprove meaning or order behind
1: it. And there to me is the crux of the issue that we agree on, Mike, and that is that don't let society take God out. Don't deplete your life of God. Because then we depleted of, of so many things that come with it. He is the answer yeah. to so many of the questions we have inside our souls. And, but that's what's happening. Nephi seems to be saying in our day that what's happening is that God is being taken out of our society. That evil is taken out of our society. There's no wrong. And if there's no wrong, there's no right. There's just your truth and my truth. And yet my spirit... And this is, I'm I'm channeling my inner
0: Abraham Lincoln, Bryce, but my spirit, when I do wrong, man, I know it. I love what Abe Lincoln said when somebody says, what's your religion? And he says, my religion is this. When I do right, I feel right. And when I do wrong, I feel wrong. And, and
1: there's the moral code. Yeah. There's the moral code that we, his children have.
0: I, one time Abraham Lincoln said, if slavery isn't wrong, then I don't know if there is wrong. Ooh. And it's just, I mean, it's so powerful. And yet, here's Nephi for a whole chapter, Bryce, saying, you Gentiles are messed
1: up. And we are. You have taken God. You have taken God out of your society. Yeah. So let's talk about how to put him back. Let's talk about how to get God back in our society. And let's turn to chapter 29. 29 is all about don't reject the Book of Mormon because you have a Bible. Don't be so blind to the concept that there's more revelation. And so, first he kind of chides them saying, hey, you're not even grateful for the Bible. You're not even grateful to the Jews who gave you the Bible. You need to be grateful. But then he says, verse 7, know ye not that there are more nations than one? Verse 8, why murmur because ye shall receive more of my word? And that's the question on the table. Why do people not want more of God's word? Because here's the rule. God is revealed in his revelations, both personal and canonical. The revelations of Scripture is how God is revealed. So verse 10, "...because ye have a Bible, ye need not suppose that it contains all my words." Neither need ye suppose that I have not caused more to be written. Now, here is the rule. Ready? Let me declare definitively what I believe God is telling us is His rule with regards to Revelation. Verse 11, I command all men, both in the east and in the west, in the north and in the south and in the isles of the sea, that they write the words which I speak unto them. Now, big picture, canon of Scripture, as well as little picture. God speaks to us, and that's how He's revealed. God speaks to us, and we know God through the revelations that come from Him, both in the canon of the Scriptures and individually. So God says, I speak, I command, I I I talk to my children, and I ask them to write it. Now, as a general rule of canon, verse 12... For behold, I shall speak unto the Jews, and they shall write it. Now, what book did the Jews write? That's the Bible. And I shall also speak unto the Nephites, and they shall write it. So, a second set of canonical scriptures. God says, I speak specifically to the Jews. That's my primary set of scripture. And then I speak to the Nephites. That's my secondary set of scriptures. Now, notice it's an and here. And. I shall also speak unto the other tribes of the house of Israel, which have been led away and they shall write it. Now, when we get to third Nephi, we're going to see that Jesus is going to leave the Nephites and go visit to the lost tri- tribes of Israel. Jesus came and spoke to three groups and three groups wrote about it. There are three sets of canonical scriptures, brothers and sisters. The Bible the Book of Mormon, and a missing set of scriptures. The set of scriptures written by the lost 10 tribes. Now I happen to be from the lost 10 tribes. The chief among the lost 10 tribes was the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was the leading tribe among the lost 10 tribes, and I happen to be from the tribe of Ephraim. So my ancestor scripture is missing. The visit of Jesus to my ancestors is missing. So, we have lots more scriptures than we, we currently have, if we will understand them and accept them and read them. And then there's one more. So, we've got three sets of scriptures, and notice there's another and. And I shall also speak unto all nations of the earth, and they shall write it. And I think there's a lot of ways to, underst- to interpret that. In terms of canonical scriptures, we have modern revelation through the Doctrine and Covenants, We have the Pearl of Great Price. But then there's that scripture in section 68 that says, whatever I speak, when men are moved upon by the Holy Ghost is scripture. And I would suggest that conference reports are scripture. I shall speak unto all nations of the earth and they shall write it. I think you can add another set. And this
0: is, I'm channeling my intersection 91, Bryce, but extra biblical literature. There is more stuff that gets edited out of the Bible than that is in the Bible. And a really good website, if you want to take some time and go through it, is this earlychristianwritings.org. Someone has put together some of these texts that don't make the cut, and they even have gone through and said, okay, this is roughly first century, this is roughly second century. And as I've spent time reading these, Bryce, I see all kinds of truth in there. Um, is there some stuff in there that maybe isn't so much true? Absolutely, but there are some gems out there.
1: So you could read you could read scripture for for a long time. And the re- the idea is God speaks through the Holy Ghost to individuals who write it. and when we're reading something that was inspired by the Holy Ghost it's scripture. Now verse 13 is an interesting checklist ready? There's four prophecies. Now you tell me how many of the prophecies have been fulfilled verse 13. It shall come to pass that the Jews shall have the words of the Nephites. Yes or no? At least do they have access to them? Do the Jews have access to the Nephites? I guess. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Now, there seems to be a future fulfillment of that. Yeah, they're probably not reading them right now. But they certainly have access to them. And the Nephites shall have the words of the Jews. Has that been fulfilled? Yeah. Very much so. I went to Mexico on my mission, and I handed out the Book of Mormon. The Nephites shall have the words of the Jews. Now, here's the next one. Ready? The Nephites and the Jews shall have the words of the lost tribes of Israel. Has that been fulfilled? No. No. The Bible, as it was written by the lost tribes, the scriptures, the visit of Christ to the lost tribes, do we know anything about it? We don't. And then there's one more prophecy. Prophecy. The lost tribes of Israel shall have the words of the Nephites and the Jews. Has that been fulfilled?
0: I think that's happening.
1: Yes, I have them. I am of the lost tribes of Israel, and I have the words of the Nephites and the Jews. Right, so so I really like this. This is a really good, careful
0: reading. And I think sometimes we just kind of go through this. And yet, if you really slow down and look at verse 12 and 13, there's a lot of depth here.
1: Yeah, and the idea is... There's, God has spoken an abundance of truth. Why in the world would you reject one because you have another one? That's crazy. So when will we get the rest of the scriptures? When would we get the book of the lost 10 tribes? Well, I wonder... If the Lord's waiting us to be waiting for us to be faithful to the books that we do have, yeah. if you turn to the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says that we were under condemnation because we have treated lightly the Book of Mormon, and there's no wonder why we don't have Book Three. We're not even treating seriously the Book Two that we have, and yet
0: think about this as a symbol: the Book of Mormon comes forth with a portion yet to come forth. Right. It's it's sealed. Jesus comes to his disciples, but he says in John he's like, "Oh, there's more. You're going to meet my father. Oh, and by the way, you're going to get the Holy Ghost. We've got the writings of these of these people, but we're going to one day meet the savior. In other words, it seems like this is a repeated symbol throughout the the scriptures of that which is lost unto us will be brought back, but
1: not all at once. And it will be brought back as you are faithful to what you do have. So let's pick up on that theme when Jesus comes to third, in third Nephi and says, look, there's another, there's a whole nother portion of the Book of Mormon you don't have. Hey, where are you? I'm in third Nephi 26. Now, this is a great test of when we will get more scriptures. So, Third Nephi chapter twenty-six, Mormon is writing and says, "These things I have written, which are the lesser part, meaning the portion of the Book of Mormon that he knew would be translated." What verse, have you, went, what verse you Verse, eight. verse Second, eight. Third Nephi twenty-six, verse eight. Okay. These things I have written, which are a lesser portion of the things which he taught the people, and I have written them that they might be in, to the intent that they may be brought again to this people. Now, verse nine. When ye shall receive this, meaning the portion of the Book of Mormon that we do have, which is expedient that they should have first to try their faith. And if it so be that they shall believe these things, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. That verse screams out to say so much more is available if you'll be faithful to what you have. Mormon wrote the portion he knew we would have, knowing that that would come first as a trial of our faith. Now, verse 10, if it so be that they will not believe these things, meaning the portion of the Book of Mormon we do have, then shall the greater things be withheld from them. Verse 11, I was about to write them, meaning the greater things. I was about to write them, all which were engraven upon the plates of Nephi, all that Jesus taught, many things that are in the sealed portion of the gold plates. I was about to write them in this portion. Verse 11, But the Lord forbade it, saying, I will try the faith of my people. In other words, my dear sweet Latter-day Saint friends were doing the same thing the Gentiles do with the Book of Mormon. They're saying... A Book of Mormon we don't need because we have a Bible. And we're saying we don't need any more scriptures. We have the Book of Mormon. But we could have so much more if we were more faithful to the Book of Mormon. If we read what we had, if we found God in the scriptures we do have, He will give us more and more that will reveal Himself unto us. I think
0: also that if we don't read what we have, right? We're back to that verse that you talked about with grace earlier where that which they had is is taken from them. Another way that I read these verses is in verse 9, when they receive this, which is expedient, greater things will be made manifest. That's verse 9. And then in verse 10, if they won't believe, then the greater things will be withheld. Yeah. I think sometimes if we don't open our minds and we don't spend the mental work to have careful reading, we miss really cool things. And that's one of my goals with this podcast. You know what? you didn't have to come here. Let's talk about some things that maybe you wouldn't get, or let's talk about some things that maybe maybe we've missed and do what I like to call a careful reading of the text. And so sometimes that takes time. Joseph said that about the deep things that are really important take time and study. And I think the Book of Mormon, it, the authors are speaking in code. Yeah. They're speaking at a very basic level, plainness, but there's this deeper level where Nephi and these other authors are sharing profound truths that are, that are encoded in the text that we can miss. And we've done some of this as we've gone through it, right? But we'll do more of this. And I can't even tell you how many times I'll read something, Rice, and I'll come across a verse and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I've totally missed that. For the first time I've seen is such a deep truth. And it might've been the 30th time I've read it. To me, verse 10, greater things will be withheld unto them if we don't read the Book of Mormon. We
1: miss some of those cool things. Or we read it as a checklist or we don't Pay the price. Neil A. Maxwell said, Thus, the Book of Mormon is like a vast mansion with gardens, towers, courtyards, and wings. There are rooms yet to be entered with flaming fireplaces waiting to warm us. Yet we, as church members, sometimes behave like hurried tourists, scarcely venturing beyond the entry hall. The Book of Mormon is the key that unlocks more revelation, not just more future can- canonized scriptures. The Book of Mormon is the key that unlocks personal revelation, personal scriptures. If we pay the price. Now, let me go back to that prophecy in the Doctrine and Covenants. I'm reading from Doctrine and Covenants 84, verse 54. Your minds in times past have been darkened because of unbelief and because you have treated lightly the things you have received. And then he specifically says what those things are in verse 57 that the church will remain under condemnation until they repent and remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon, and the former commandments which I have given them. That includes the Bible. You will remain under condemnation. In other words, you're never going to get more until we stop taking lightly the scriptures that we have been given. I with all my soul, with everything I have, I testify to you that one of the greatest keys to unlocking the knowledge of God is to turn to the scriptures, to read them and not take them lightly, but to comb through them with purpose and with time and with effort, trying to find those hidden messages that are there if we will just look for them and pay the price to understand them. The Book of Mormon opens us up well, I should say faithful attention to the scriptures we do have. So if I have no idea that the Book of Mormon exists, a faithful reading of the Bible leads me to the same thing. Reading the scriptures I do have will open me up to revelation and open the doors of heaven. And so I happen to have the Book of Mormon. And so I use that. Reading the Book of Mormon more faithfully with greater interest will unlock revelation. I think that's the message of Nephi. Yeah. And so in closing... I love uh, 2 Nephi
0: 30 verse 5, which says the gospel of Jesus Christ will be declared among them, wherefore they will be restored to the knowledge of their fathers and also to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, which was had among their fathers. So the text of the scriptures brings you to a knowledge of God. I really like some of the things we've talked about, Bryce, about pondering and thinking about how does this teach me more about our Father in Heaven, life experience, real connection. I think real connection with human beings, with our loved ones, with the text and with the heavens is a big part of why we're here. And so with that, we're going to end Second Nephi
1: next time where we'll do uh, 30 to the end. Just as a plug for that. Yeah. He shifts gears here in chapter thirty-one, because he's been talking about to the Jews, to the Nephites, to the Gentiles. And now in chapter 31, he says in verse 2, The things which I have written suffice me, save it be a few words which I must speak concerning the doctrine of Christ. So he's kind of done. His message to the Jews, to the Nephites, to the Lamanites, to the Gentiles is over. And now I want to teach the doctrine of Christ. So next week's block is all about the doctrine of Christ. Yeah. So with that, we thank you for listening.
0: And as always, if this has been meaningful to you, share it in your circle of influence, share it with your
1: friends. And thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Have a wonderful week.